Today we Information have information you can trust. Sandoval on Stories the podcast. You can relate to and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. Hey Bo, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to hop on the podcast. You got it, Zach. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited about it. I am too. I mean, gosh, it's been almost what a year and a half or two years since we met in person on that hunt and <laughs> we've been working yeah. at it ever since <laughs> yep yep it's been man that, that flies by it's it's, true. it's so crazy ago. you know <laughs> I, you know and you have you have young kids as do i and it ever since having kids the time seems to go by even faster is that how it is for you too yeah i mean it, it flies by i mean because you it used to be you know, you worked your day job and then you got home, you decompressed, you made a meal, you did your hobbies. And now it's just like your day, your work day ends and your kids day begins. Like they're just, they're nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. Sports and activities and school. And so, yeah, it well, makes it go by quick. It, isn't that the truth? Well, um, if you wouldn't mind real mm. quick, just kind of give a, a, a real brief um, background of, of yourself and, you know, a little bit about what you do and your family and things like that. And then then we'll uh, jump into this. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm living in I live in College Station, Texas. I'm an assistant athletics director with Texas A&M Athletics currently. Uh, been a strength and conditioning coach uh, professionally for for my career, my whole career about the last 22 ish years. Um, from the south, I grew up in Louisiana. I have a lot of family across Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and uh, in Texas now it's it's me, my wife Amanda, and our two boys Lucas and Grayson, and um, and uh, we've been in College Station for about uh, a little over a year now. We, we relocated from Vegas. We were in Vegas for about five years. I was working as the director of strength and conditioning for the UFC uh, there. Um, and then prior to that, we were out in the Midwest out in, um, in Michigan and Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan for about eight and a half years. Um, and then prior to that and prior to kids, me and my wife were in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Olympic Training Center there. Uh, in a similar capacity with combat sports, working with wrestlers, boxers, judoka. No kidding. Um, yep. And uh, and then prior to that, right out of college, my first job was at a small Presbyterian NAIA school in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. Um, and uh, that's where I started and, and started cutting my teeth, working with coaches and athletes right out of my master's program from Southern Mississippi. So. Ow. It's been a that we just talked about how fast time flies by that and the entirety of all that stuff it, the the speed at which that has flown by still blows my mind because some of those memories are as vivid as like they happened yesterday but yeah so here we are in Texas <laughs> in yeah f- for sure and, and and I I didn't know that you had a history of you know being in Colorado Springs that's only gosh that's about two and a half hours from me or three hours whatever it is okay. Um, so that's, that's just interesting, but uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, you know, I, I look back on things in my life and then like you said, the kids come into it and it's just like you blink and it's been 10 years. It's like, man, what I'm glad I got stuff done, but man, it's crazy to think that it's gone. Oh yeah. Um, So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, obviously you've had, um, an extensive resume of being able to, kind of shape and mold people um and and not 
you know, obviously I, I don't think as a coach, I don't think it's ever your goal to completely change someone. I do think, however, you have uh, an obvious strength in helping somebody be the best version of themselves. Um, so, so with that, uh, you know, f- you know, your experience when you were working with the UFC Performance Institute, um, what, what did you learn about building a strong mindset among those athletes? Yeah, you know, the first, uh, you know, identify with the job, with the role. There's two kind of key words. One is service, and then the other one is, um, is supplemental. So, you know, you kind of have to have that mentality about about you as you deliver your skills to whoever the, you know, the, the clientele, the athlete, who the coach, whoever it is. Right. Um, and so in doing that, if you have that mindset, that that's where you figure out how you can be helpful is if you have a service mindset and you have the idea of the notion that you're supplemental to many other things. There are many other um, things going on in that person's world that are attributing or could be you know, could also be degrading their, their performance in their sport or whatever their job is that they do. So in approaching fighting, um, one of the biggest key differences in fighting to get to that point where you can actually be helpful is it is a very tight circle. Um, with, with the people that are in a corner, in a fight corner, it's a very tight circle of individuals who've been spending a lot of time together as, you know, the fighter has been essentially brutalizing themselves, learning improved tactics of offense and defense to try to subdue an opponent or outscore an opponent. Um, and, and, you know, to know that you're on the right track and you're acquiring the right skills and working on the, the right weaknesses, you need to know that your circle is tight and you've got people around you with the best interest. So that, that's kind of the first, you know, barrier of entry. You got to get to that point, which that can be done in 30 seconds sometimes. And sometimes it takes a matter of weeks. Um, and then in terms of like the mentality side, it's very difficult to address someone's mental approach or their mental focus or their mental fatigue until you've gotten through that barrier of entry of, Hey, we, you know, I'm, I'm in it for your best interest. And we have an understanding that I'm here to help you in this area. So in terms of getting to that point, once we're there, the number one thing is there is no greater forging aspect of mentality than fatigue fatigue can it can make or break someone it can it can develop someone and it can also ruin someone when when it's at the wrong time and so we can employ different types of fatigue different levels of fatigue and it's not so much the stimulus that matters even though you know that's part of the strategy you want to try to apply the correct stimulus but what matters is now how do you deal with that fatigue i think that's what separates the champions from the average yeah Um, the elites from the average is how they can maintain their composure and still be strategic under heavy amounts of stress and heavy amounts of anxiety and heavy Absolutely. amounts of fatigue. Um, so that, that is really what we're strategizing. And when it comes to the mentality side of fighting, it's not that I'm saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to get between your ears and play psychologist. It's I'm going to use physiology to get you into a dark place. And then I'm going to give you strategies on how to manage yourself in that dark place. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, throughout that, you brought up a lot of really excellent points and, and things that, you know, it's kind of like uh, what what resonated with me was, you know, thinking of like SEAL training or Army Ranger or something like that. You know, it's again, the the TIs or the cadres are not 
playing psychiatrists, but what they are going to do is they're going to put an amount of stress on you that is probably never happened to you any other time in your life. And then they're going to see how you handle that stress. And it, you know, it sounds like that is, is a big aspect of what you're doing in those situations is like, Hey, yeah, we're, we're going to mentally and physically exhaust you. And then we're going to see which direction you go from there. Sure. Yeah. You know, the, I think, I think some of the special ops groups kind of coin the phrase of, you know, character is revealed during heavy bouts of fatigue. And right. so when you look at a lot of those um, training regiments, whether it's buds or it's hell week or ranger, ranger school or anything, they're, they're going to, they're going to deprive them of sleep. They're going to limit caloric intake. So they're going to make them hungry. All the things that primarily tell you to stop. Yep. Like it, primarily our body says, Hey, when you don't have those things, you should stop. When you're dehydrated, you should stop. Well, when, when someone's still asking you to complete a task with accuracy and with precision, um, and you're under that type of stress and duress and, and lack of fuel and lack of sleep, um, that's when your true character is going to come out. It's going to determine who's pan. It's going to see real quick who's panicking, who's executing, who's leading, um, who's contributory, who's non-contributory. Um, and it, that's dire in fighting. I mean, there's nothing comfortable about fighting. It, you know, everyone can perform well in a comfortable environment. You know, if I regulate the rest period and I regulate the sets and reps and I regulate the environment, a cool 72 degrees inside the room and I, you know, there's no crowd, there's no noise. And it's just you and your buddies training. That, that's a really comfortable scenario. You know, lock the cage with 20,000 fans in the arena and um, half of them have bet against you. And, uh, and once they close the cage door, it's tough to hear your coaches. You can hear them from right. time to time from outside the cage, but you're pretty much on your own. And so it's important to, to go to some of those places in training so that that's not such a foreign concept when it happens when they close the cage door. Absolutely. That, that makes complete sense. So when you were, were working with, obviously, each person is different, you know, um, and you start working with these, with athletes, um, what types of, of exercises or other things would you do when, when you notice somebody's motivation or mindset is, is kind of starting to lack or, or show holes that they need worked on? What, you know, what, what kind of things would you do to help them repair those holes and go move forward and upward as opposed to the opposite? Yeah, I think fundamentally first is assessment. Like we would go through a series of assessments and understanding objective assessments and understand one, what kind of physiological specimen am I dealing with? Cause in a sport like fighting, it's super technical. We have fighters that are incredibly successful that aren't that athletic they're not, they're not carrying these physical attributes that you would anticipate. They just know how to take their right hand and put it on the button at the right time and they can turn anyone's lights off. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, and then we do have the extreme athletes that have all kinds of physical attributes. So assessment will tell us that it'll tell us physiologically, what are we dealing with? What kind of animal are we dealing with? And then the good old fashioned, you got to have a conversation with the entire fight camp. I need to have an understanding from a striking coach and the wrestling coach, grappling coach, um, you know, the head coach, whoever my, and the fighter, an understanding of where is this person's literacy at? Like, where are you in the fight spectrum? Just because someone makes it to a league like the UFC doesn't mean you're the best in the world. It means you've made it to a professional league. You could still have a massive learning curve in front of you, which we see get exploited all the time. You see someone come up who's got a ton of knockouts, 
and then they get in the UFC and they face their first purebred wrestler and they absolutely get mauled. And you're like, wait a minute, this guy's a professional fighter. He should be elite. Well, he is elite in several things. It's just that he's got one big learning curve on the wrestling side or vice versa. You see an all-American wrestler come in and the first time they fight someone that's got incredible takedown defense that knows how to strike, they get beat up. And it's like, well, wait, I thought this guy was an elite wrestler. Well, he is. He just doesn't have that part of his game yet. So you got to have an understanding from the fight team, like where are we at in the learning curve? Is this a well-rounded fighter or do we have some technical gaps to cover? Once we understand what those technical gaps are, what that tells me is what they're game planning. Hey, we're going to game plan around doing these two things. And that tells me based off of understanding fight physiology, whether it's striking or grappling, what kind of energy systems does that demand? Wrestling demands a very different type of energy usage compared to striking in open space. Um, Cage wrestling is a little bit different. Clinch wrestling is a little bit different. When you got two really good grapplers and they're exchanging back and forth and there's a lot of scrambles, that's a very different, that's a super high intensity round, a very high intensity bout. If you've got two kickboxers that are kind of dancing around the perimeter, poking at each other, trying to measure distance, that gets a little bit more low, slower paced. It, it has a lot more potential for a fast finish, uh, but the energy usage is different. And so knowing those things, now I can say, okay, this is what the type of, uh, of approach strategically you guys are taking based off what this fighter is good at and bad at. Now, based on that, here's what I'm going to supply to both exploit his strengths and then also try to combat his weaknesses or improve his weaknesses um as we get ready to that fight now that's just evaluating the fighter so just not not to overly simplify this no uh, you're there's good. another complex there's another <laughs> complex problem at hand and that is once you evaluate that now you got to evaluate who are we fighting because the same offensive approach may not be effective for this particular matchup they may need a different offensive approach and that may or may not be a strength for our fighter at the moment and so uh, same with defense. So you got to evaluate both of those. What are we good at and what are we trying to improve? And then what's the, our opponent good at? What are they going to be trying to do to us? What are they known for? And how do we combat that um, as we make our decisions? OK, this is what we're going to invest our time and training into as we prepare for this this particular bout. Gotcha. When we're not, you know, that gets simpler when we're not, you know, when we're not on a fight card or we're not in a fight camp getting ready for a particular bout then my strategy is always let's go after the weaknesses. If we're not in camp right now and we're just generally training, let's generally work on all the things that we're bad at. So when we do go into camp, that's one less weakness that we've, we've got to worry about. That's a new strength we've added to our arsenal as we move into the next fight camp. So that's, that's usually the typical approach. I gotcha. And with, you know, with working so hard on, on specific portions and things like that, uh, or I guess specific aspects of a fighter, um, what, you know, what would you say might be some, some of the common misconceptions about when it comes to strength and conditioning as, you know, like whether you're pushing someone too hard or not hard enough, or, you know, what, what would be some of those in the, in the UFC world that you used to be a part of? Yeah. Um, at one, I would say the biggest one is that you have to simulate a five minute fight round in all of your training, which is totally not accurate. Um, when you look at, you know, I used to, the way we work, we operate at the UFC. Not only was I working with fighters within our, our very local area, Arizona, you know, Nevada, Arizona, California, Utah. But then we were also remotely interacting with fighters all over the world. There's over, there's over 700 fighters on the UFC roster across more than 40 countries. So 
um, we're not only training them personally, but we're interacting and liaisoning with their strength and conditioning coaches that they're working with in Poland or in China or in, in Brazil. And so um, in doing that, you start to learn some things that they're doing. And that got beat to death. Like, oh, we're going to do five minutes of this. You know, we're going to do these three things and we're going to do them in a circuit for five minutes. Well, why? Well, it's a five minute round. So that's what we're getting ready for. Well, you know, that that five minute mentality is not always the most beneficial approach because some guys need higher intensity than that. So we may need to go shorter at a higher intensity for some guys. They need more endurance. So we may need to go longer at a lower intensity. Gotcha. Um, and so depending on where we're at and where and that's what assessment helps you with. It helps you more specifically identify what you need. And going back to the original word describing you know, what I do for a living supplemental, you have to remember that we are not the fight round, we are supplemental to the fight round. So how do I supplement micro segments of that fight round that are going to dictate whether or not we're in a dominant position, or we're in a, a, uh, a, an oppressed position where we're, we're getting scored on. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Where can I influence better energy usage? Where can I influence a better uh, better composure during fatigue and where can I influence mechanical strength right. to where they can overcome those positions. Absolutely. And you know, I, when you are, are pushing these athletes and, and really working with them and trying to find out kind of their breaking point, um, you know, I would imagine when it, when it comes time to balance that, uh, is, you know, so that you help them achieve their full potential, but you're in avoiding injury and burnout. Does, does avoiding that have a lot to do with truly getting to know the, the individual themselves and, and their mentality and their body and their strengths and weaknesses? Is, is that kind of a big part of being able to avoid injury and burnout? Totally understanding because there, there's definitely a talent code as to what people can mentally and physically endure. Right. And then based on where they're at in that talent spectrum, you can definitely nudge it to the left or to the right a little bit over time as they train and as they work and learn and develop new skills <laughs> and their fight IQ goes up. Um, but the, the other thing is, is um, as you're figuring them out and understanding them, when people say the word strength and conditioning or it's a strength and conditioning, immediately they think stimulus. This guy's either doing strength training with them or he's conditional. One of those two. Well, the other, I would say 50% of the job outside of that is planning. Number one, it's, it's getting into a planning relationship with the fight team and the fighter so that there's strategy to the work we're doing. There's a strategy and a timing to the work that we're doing. So it has a certain layer of precision and accuracy. It's not just random bouts of fatigue. Um, because there is some precision to a fight. A fight is, it is very concisely three, five minute rounds in a championship bout. It is very concisely through five, five minute rounds. There's no guesswork about it. Right. So knowing, knowing some of these black and white parameters, um, we can also establish training parameters. Um, and just as much as we want to strategize work and stimulus, we also want to strategize windows of recovery gotcha. and opportunities for recovery. And so in between kickboxing practice and wrestling practice or MMA sparring or, or strength and conditioning session, there's always either an opportunity for recovery or an opportunity to overtrain. And so they, they need skills in those areas, just like anything else. They need to know how to lay down and elevate their feet, take naps at strategic times. They need to know how to contrast bathe and cold tub and use the sauna for relaxation and anti-inflammatory responses 
Um, they need to understand how to use those things so that they can continue accumulating their training. Um, so the other side of not only providing stimulus is planning and then organizing opportunities for recovery. That's the other job. I would say the other part of the job description for a strength coach. Okay. Yeah, no, I, and that, I, uh, that makes complete sense. And, and, uh, you know, hearing about all of the, the planning and the, the intentional exercises and the intentional, you know, like with anything in life, right. The intention behind something can make or break or change everyone's reaction perspective and things like that. And so I could 100% see, you know, like, Hey, we're going to do this type of exercise and the, the outcome and the intention is, is this is what we're looking for. And I could see how that would completely shift the, um, the mentality. It would, you know, shift all kinds of aspects of that exercise. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you go from, from doing that and working with fighters and everything like that. And, and I, and I might miss, you know, you've done a lot of stuff, so I might miss a couple things, Mm -hmm. but now kind of transitioning into being in Texas and, and working, you know, with, as, as the athletics director, um, you know, how, how would you, how are you basically applying, um, the background that you brought from all of your other things, um, you know, for strength, conditioning, mentality from all the, the various institutions before this, um, applying that moving forward to, as the director of the sports performance for, uh, for there in Texas. Yeah. So at, at Texas A&M, you know, my role is, it's kind of 50 50 okay. administrative and which involves a lot of management systems and, and integrating with other departments. <laughs> and then the other part is training is uh, I manage a, um, we have uh, eight professionals within Olympic sports that work across a dozen or so sports outside of football. Um, and, uh, and so the, the sort of, affinity to this was, you know, at some point, I've always said this, at some point in my career, I wanted to get into a management position to where I could not only assist and mentor other strength coaches, but um, I could provide better strategies and models for management. Strength and conditioning is one of those things, like it doesn't come with a handbook on like, here's how you strategize all your... (laughs) Like being a parent. (laughs) Right, exactly, right. They don't come with a manual on how to how to operate them and optimize their talents. Yeah. Um, and so um, a lot of times when you look at how collegiate administrations are set up, most of the time upper administrators are either they're finance majors or they're legal, you know, they have a legal background or something in economics. And um, maybe they were a former athlete, but, but they don't always come from a coaching pedigree. They don't come from an instructor pedigree. They don't come from an educator pedigree. And so um, a lot of times when you get these specialists, say a physical therapist or a strength and conditioning coach, a dietitian, um, a, a PhD in physiology, they don't always know how to manage those pieces to optimize their efficacy. And so that happens a lot in college sports. Um, and so I've always said like, man, if I could sit at, the, at an administrative table to be able to help better strategize that type of personnel, set up better management systems for that type of personnel so that they could actually 
be better equipped to do their jobs there's that they're subject matter experts in uh, i'd really like to have a shot at that because there are a lot of division one institutions that i feel like they're just they're not running as efficiently as they could be gotcha um, it can it, and, and that has a lot to do with you know college athletics is fast it is a very fast pace it is semester at a time um, football seasons go in a flash basketball seasons go in a flash and these coaches, man, their heads are spinning. If they're not focused on a season right now, then they're focused on the recruits they're trying to bring in for next season. Right. They're focused on, the, you know, improving graduation rates going into the next season. Their heads are spinning. And so in the meantime, everything else kind of, it, it can be a whirlwind. Of, all right, train and then go to class and then go to practice and then come back and do a study session and then go see the PT and do some soft tissue work and then go to bed and then wake up and we're going to train again. And, we're gonna, and the next thing you know, Everything is crammed into this super condensed day. The quality starts to drop. The precision and uh, the targeting around it, the objectivity of it starts to drop. Yeah. And so if, if there's not a, be- a, a, a bespoke model in place, which we're all constantly striving for, by the way, um, to manage all that stuff, you quickly become just an average. Yeah, they got all that. They got a weight room. They got a, you know, they have a PT clinic. They have a a dining hall and you know we have all those things to say that we're functionally utilizing those things at a world-class level um for most they're not and for us in particular an institution like this which is why i had such a high affinity to it they should be they have the budgetary support they have the the scope the landscape the size the practitioners this is a place where i'm like man you just take a little bit of strategy and apply it to all these talented professionals that are here we should be dominating things. And so that was where the opportunity was like, man, that's an opportunity to go to a place that's got a lot of really special things going on. They have a lot of momentum in the right direction that you could benefit from um, a little more precise strategy, some encouragement around better systems geared towards integration, people working together, more of a community approach versus silos of specialty. Um, and that's what that's what I aim to bring to the table. That's what I've begun to bring to the table. And that's, that's what I feel passionate about. I love working and interacting with other high quality professionals that are passionate about their genre of what they, what they uh, do. Yeah. And uh, this, this position gives me the ability to to do that on a daily basis. That's awesome. Well, and, and I I can hear, uh, you know, I can hear the passion in your voice. I can hear that it excites you. And uh, I mean, I, I would assume somewhere along that the stuff you've done in life, you've probably had a job that you're like, you know what? I would be just fine if I didn't have to wake up and go do this tomorrow. <laughs> um, Cause that happens, you know, sometimes that happens yeah. and y- you use something like that as a stepping stone to get into something that you truly want and you desire and you feel fulfilled. Right. And based off of what you just mentioned, I can 100% see that this is like, I don't know what size shoe you wear, but this shoe fit you perfectly. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, you're, you're able to attack it at all aspects that intrigue you and make you feel engaged, which is, which is awesome. Uh, you know, one thing that you mentioned about that is, is you really enjoy being able to, uh, not only help the athletes, but, um, be able to help the guide and, and work with coaches and things like that. Um, you know, obviously the, the coaches are a completely different person and in a different spot in their life and a different role than your athletes. Um, so 
what uh, you know what might be some of the uh, the support systems and things like that that you are putting in place for these newer coaches? Yeah, I mean we we have a mix here. I mean we've got I've got strength and conditioning coaches on my staff. I have one that's been here almost thirty years. I have others that they're in the fifth year of their professional career. That's the very early stages. Um, we have head sport coaches that have been here for 30 years and we have head sport coaches that just got here two months ago, brand new, fired the old coach, got a new coach in. And so um, as far as the strength and conditioning staff that I have, the, the biggest thing is advocating for them and giving them a platform to be able to not only do a good job here, but establish themselves as uh, recognizable subject matter experts in our field. And sometimes that gets left behind. Sometimes they can get, you know, they get locked behind closed doors and they're doing a great job and they're doing tremendous work that contributes towards championships. But it's not like a glory role. It's not a role where, you know, you're going to see that person in the headlines. Right. Not up on that pedestal. Right. But within our industry, there are definitely opportunities for them to gain recognition, for them to give get opportunities to speak publicly, to go and, and present their work and, and where they've developed strategies that work and, and how they interact with and influence athletes. Um, and then from a sport coaching standpoint, you know, working with these sport coaches, um, coaches, you know, they get put on a pedestal because they are leaders. They're, right. they're in a, you know, in an ultimate leadership role. Um, but it's a lonely place sometimes. And what they have to deal with from media to recruiting to, you know, you know, competition, there's a ton of pressure in coaching and every coach needs help, all of them. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, what a strength and conditioning coach can provide, um, we're essentially not only do we specialize in one particular area, but we're in a great role to be sort of a community servant as well. We can assist and help with advocating for better practices around, you know, maintenance and, and um, you know, going to see the physical therapist and going to the massage therapist and, uh, you know, actively pursuing recovery methods and actively pursuing our sports psychologists to talk about their mental approach to competition, actively pursuing our dietitians to improve their dietary makeup uh, and how they're fueling for competitions and practices. We can be an advocate just as much as we can be a training source um, as we should be. And so um, it's a great way for us to be able to help support coaches in their mission, which is ultimately to win more games, to win yeah. more competitions. Um, and, uh, you know, for coaches too, like the misinformation train for them is just the same as the general public. You know, they, they don't know what they don't know. And they know a little bit about, about what they do know. And so it's always great to have subject matter experts around that can say, yeah, coach, it's actually beneficial for this athlete to have this many carbs because of the type of sport that they do. Um, or yeah, coach, this person, you know, could benefit from an extra conditioning session because this is the type of deficit that we're dealing with. Um, you know, they, they, um, little tidbits they can pick up about fad training schemes and fad diets and things on social media. They're just as susceptible to that as someone in the general public. So knowing that they've got a committee of professionals around them, that can help steer them in the right direction, ultimately steer the athletes in the right direction. Um, They love it. They love the support. They, you know, having a community underneath you so that you can really focus on what they are. They can really focus on what they're good at, which is X's and O's and tactics and how to, how to beat out strategize and beat someone at the game that they're playing. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something there that was, you know, that, that support system of, of, and, and willing to look at somebody that maybe knows more about a specific area than they do. 
um, that it's, it's just like in my mind, like being a parent, right? Like I look at, you know, somebody that is exceptionally well with handling their kids that's misbehaving. And I'm like, man, maybe I'm not that great that maybe I should go over there and learn from them, you know, kind of the same idea. And, uh, Mm -hmm. it, there, there's power in being able to focus on your strengths and then being willing to learn on the, the aspects and topics of your weaknesses. Sure. Let the bakers do the bacon. And then every now and then, you know, you know, you, you get to make a loaf of bread, but for the most part, let, you know, let them, let them do their thing. Let the mechanics change the oil. Let, you know, Yep. Um, that's, uh, that's important. Otherwise, you know, you end up with too many chiefs and you don't have enough people towing the line. Yeah. You know, with, with your guys's, obviously you're getting athletes from all different walks of life, you know, different cultural backgrounds. Uh, and I would imagine some of these athletes are like, look, my goal is to go pro. And some of them are like, look, my goal is to make the most of this four years and then I'm done. Um, you know, so how, how do you go about, you know, with that wide of a variety, um, what are some, some things that you have to really focus on as far as like training programs and things like that go so that they, they remain effective for everyone? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that gets into, you gotta be resourceful. So while you'll, you'll develop a vision with a coach, with a sport, you'll develop a, a mantra, you'll develop a training culture. And as you're developing those things, um, it's going to eventually culminate into objectives. And those, those objectives are going to culminate into a program. And then that program is going to be sort of a general roadmap. And then within that program, um, I'm going to start to bucket athletes. So I'm going to bucket them into different areas, depending on what their strengths and weaknesses are, where they're at in their training age, you know, a freshman, their needs analysis may look very different from a fifth year senior all American. Gotcha. Um, or if I have two fifth year seniors and one's an all American and one is a non-starter who barely plays, you know, their, their demand is very different. Their playing demand is different. Um, you know, if you look at a sport like basketball, you have two seniors, one gets 40 minutes a game. The other plays about six minutes a game. Their demand is very different. Right. Um, so, so understanding kind of what they need, that, that helps us bucket them into the appropriate buckets. Um, some of it's based off of injury status or injury histories. You know, some need more preventative work on top of the, the targeted objective work that we're doing. Um, and that's, that's really where you end up bridging a lot of gaps as well, because they get this feel of an a la carte service. They get this feel of individualization, like, Hey, this person's really paying attention to my needs as well as the needs of the entirety of the program, the entirety of the roster. And so, um, the second that you can get them to forget that they're just a number and that they're an actual person. Um, I mean, that probably that the helps the process a ton. And yeah. so you don't really get into when you, when you have that type of flow, you don't get into too many conversations of, well, yeah, coach, but I'm, I'm just here for four years and I'm not, you know, you don't get, you don't get to that because there are things that are much more acute that are right in front of them or that we're focusing on. To they focus don't have to on. Think gotcha. about, right. They don't have to think about, you know, what am I going to do when I'm done? Or you know, am I going to make it in the, in the, into the professional leagues whenever I'm finished? Um, that, that really kind of trickles over into the, I have this soapbox often with coaches the the chat around motivation motivation is like my least favorite word because typically 
it's associated with this acute burst of excitement, this acute burst of energy, which is like caffeine, right? Caffeine is great. It gives you a jolt, but then it goes away and it crashes. It's not, it's not sustainable. It's not something I can rely on. It's not, um, it's not something that I would say, we're going to win our championship because of motivation. I can't even tell if it's going to be there or not. Instead, I like to hang my hat on culture. I like to hang my hat on discipline, on routine, on, you know, what is our standard routine of excellence? What does that look like? What are we known for? Um, that's not a burst. That's not a, that's not a dose of caffeine. That is what makes us who we are day in and day out, rain or shine. If I, when, when the second I make up, I wake up, that's who I am. Um, and so that's, I try to get them to hang their hat more on that. That's what you're going to rely on at the moment of truth. When you are fatigued, when you are getting your ass kicked, when you are, you know, still expected to win, you're going to fall back on the things that you're most fundamentally sound on. And that is the thing that you're most regularly disciplined on. So if you're regularly a poor, uh, executioner, if you're regularly a poor, um, you know, if you have a poor ability to execute on the regular, well, you're definitely not going to do it under stress and fatigue. And when we need a game winning shot or, or whatever, you know, but if you're someone that has those attributes, they're sound, they're reliable every day, whether you're having a bad day or not, whether you're on your menstrual cycle or not, whether you had a, you know, an awful flight home the day before or not, doesn't matter. If, if that's what you have established yourself on is discipline and routine, it'll be there when you need it in the moment of truth. Right. And that brings up, you know, it, it, it sounds like, um, you know, with this, this question I, that I brought up, you know, I, I was curious about helping an athlete shift from, Hey, I need to be motivated to driven culture and fundamentals. And it, it, from what you just said, you know, when you elaborate, it sounds like that happens with repetition that happens with the proper steps and training put in place. Um, did I, did I kind of grasp that correctly? Yeah, definitely. Cause I mean, you're going to build confidence in someone as a second, they recognize that the system is working you're going to build confidence and then that's, you're going to steamroll and steamroll. And then when you start accumulating good performances, that's just going to make it snowball even faster. Right. In fighting in particular in fighting, man, confidence is everything. And so you're in the business of accumulating, accumulating confidence minute by minute, day by day, training session by training session, week by week, up until the fight. The last thing you want to do is something that will punch a hole in confidence during a training camp leading up to a fight. Because when they cut that, when they close that cage door, the only thought in your mind is there's absolutely no way this dude can beat me. Right. There's no way that this person, there's nothing that this person could do to put me at harm enough to where they'll stop me from winning this fight. They, right. They've got to have that mindset when they step in. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes total sense. I mean, I couldn't imagine, you know, here you are working, um, you know, in your fight camp all the way up. And then a week before, you know, somebody, somebody goes to spar with the guy and, and beats him or girl, you right. know, woman. Yep. I, I couldn't imagine what that would do to the person thinking I'm supposed to go in, in a week into the cage and actually do this thing. Like I just lost. I couldn't imagine yeah. what that would do. Right. Um, it kind of not quite off topic, but it, it's something that really intrigues me, you know, obviously, cause I've coached, but young kids, right. Um, but even mm-hmm. at a, you know, four five, six, uh, years of age, you can pick out athletes that have a lot of heart and a lot of try, and you can pick out athletes that are the complete opposite. Um, 
in all of your experience is is heart and and try is that something that's ingrained in an athlete or is there a way to teach that i think they're all in different areas of that process some already have it by the time they encounter me some are still working on it and, gotcha. and, and then it escalates as time moves on. But the first thing they got to be passionate about is, is what they're doing. Right. Um, you know, if they're trying to earn a living or they're trying to earn a scholarship, or do something you know, while doing something that they genuinely don't love, that's going to be an uphill battle. You're skating uphill the entire time. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, is it a genetic trait? I don't think so. I think it's a process of, I found a skill that I'm good at. I happen to love it. And now I'm progressively getting, progressively getting better at it. As I get better at it, it's making me love it even more because I know I can essentially be a master at it. Um, I think that accumulates over time and through proper processes and good support um, that can escalate pretty high to the point where that's their dogma, man. That is, that is what they know. And that's what they love. And the idea of retirement and it, it doesn't even enter their brain. You, you almost have to force them to that, you know, many years down the road. Right. But, um, it, they're all different in terms of what drives that. And some are driven by the process. I, I've worked with fighters that they had no interest. They do not love fighting at all. They, they're scared to death of it, but they were a really good college wrestler. They were a champion. They, you know, they're really competitive. They want to win at something and they're addicted to that adrenaline rush from winning. They're like, Hey, I'm pretty good at fighting. So I'm going to keep doing that. I've had guys that have fought for titles with that mentality. Um, huh, and that's so, crazy to think. You know, they, and they'll tell you like, dude, I hate fighting. Like last thing I want to do is punch someone in the face, but I'm really fucking good at it and I can make a living at it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, you know? Hell yeah. No, I mean, that makes so, sense. I, I like, um, and you can even really obviously oversimplify that, you know, like somebody that is like, you know, I really don't like my job, but I'm really good at it. So I'm going to mm. keep going. I'm going to see where this thing goes, you know, yep. kind of yep. same idea. Um, you know, now I, I, man, I, I learned a whole bunch about, <laughs> I did. I, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, the first portion of this conversation about kind of, you know, your your lifestyle leading up to where you are now, um, working with a variety of athletes, mentality, everything like that. I, I that's stuff that really is intriguing to me because people are so different. Um, sure. You know, um, you know, I, I do, I want to shift over a little bit to kind of more about you and your, okay. uh, you know, like what excites you and, and you know, it's, it's, from from you and I having other past conversations, I know that your kids are a big driver. I know that hunting is. Um, and one thing that that's that I want to kind of discuss about hunting is I, I kind of want to know like your background of hunting and and how you got started because you you mentioned the bond that is able to get created by having grueling exercise with someone. And mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but there are times when I've walked miles upon miles with somebody <laughs> I really didn't know. And by the time you're done, you, it, you're like, man, we're, we're, yeah. Hey, how's it going? We're best friends, you know? And yep. so I was uh, kind of curious. Obviously I want to know your, the, the, what drew you to hunting, but I'm curious if that aspect of hunting kind of it always being different, the challenge and things like that. I'm wondering if that has something to do with, with what drew you to hunting. And I'm just kind of interested how you got into it. Sure. Yeah, no, I, um, 
Yeah, as a kid, I had a I had aunts and uncles and, and grandparents that, that got me in the outdoors um, around like nine, ten years old um, with small game stuff. You know, we were chasing rabbits around with four tens and and um, and doing some some squirrel hunting and things like that. And then all my older cousins and uncles were were tree stand deer hunters down in the south, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, and um, and so I kind of got into it you know, at an early age doing that. And eventually in my teens, I got into archery a little bit. My mom got me my first bow. I think I was like 16 years old, 15, 16. That's awesome. Um, and kind of got into that a little bit. And, uh, and then, you know, when I went, when I started going into college, I, I didn't really have that much time. I, you know, I'd, I'd maybe get a hunt in every fall, maybe once some, I didn't get any. Um, and I always said like, man, once I get my feet on the ground professionally, I can't wait to get back into this. And, I got and you. eventually I was, I was able to, um, and I was able to explore some different things doing, um, you know, everything from pheasant hunting out in the open fields of Kansas to whitetail hunting, you know, across the country. Um, and then eventually made my way out West and was able to get into some spot and stock stuff with, um, mule deer and antelope and, and, um, and, uh, elk. And, uh, you know, so in terms of your question, like the, the bond through it, the early bond was just. The fact that I could do something with my hands, with my mind, out in nature, and then that would eventually end up in my freezer and we could eat it. And now I've got sustenance. Like I did, I basically yeah. just formulated my own grocery store. I was fascinated by that. Absolutely. That I didn't have to go to a store to get it. Um, and then as, as I got older and got into more of the physical side of hunting, um, that's when it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm learning that not only can I out strategize an animal. Um, but I can out physical them. I'm going to, I'm going to have to compete with them a little bit. I'm going to have to move into their terrain. I'm going to have to get into their space a little bit, which is not natural for us. It's not, you know, our feet aren't designed for it. Our, right. the, the, the tools that we have aren't designed for all this. So we have to build mechanisms to be able to do that. Um, and some of that is physicality. Um, to your question about like making bonds, you know, going on hunts and things, it is very similar to training hard with somebody uh, me and you have a great story. I don't know if you remember or not, but I think, you know, within the first you know, <laughs> hour that we're in the truck together, we got uh you know, got his truck stuck and we spent, I don't know, probably 90 minutes digging that thing out. Um, Carrying rocks down and, and everything. Yeah. It was, it was around the monsoon season out in Arizona, man. And, and we got into a rut that was deeper than what that truck was ready for. And next thing you know, we're, we're gathering rocks from a hundred yards away trying to pull them towards the road and stick up underneath the wheels and sticks and whatever else we could shove up under there. Yep. Eventually getting it out. But that, that 90 minutes to two hours, that was grueling. And that was before, you know, we did a, we did a morning stock that, that morning, but there was another <laughs> afternoon stock that was coming. So it was like, shit, we just got a little midday workout before we're going to go put some more miles in this afternoon. Yeah. And yeah, that stuff, that stuff sparks conversation. That stuff starts to tell you about where people are from. That stuff starts to tell you about who's there to help and who's there to. You know, so true. To contribute. So yeah, yeah that, I think a lot of friendships and a lot of bonding are made. Man, some of my best experiences are, have been in deer camp. Which yeah. Is, yeah. People are like, Oh, cause of the conversation or the drinks and like yeah, some of that, but then some of it's the sweat. Some of it's the failure, some of it's the success, you know, it's exchanging stories and telling stories about how it happened or why it didn't happen and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a blast. I, I love it. I, you know, in terms of, you know, long game, I'm really, my goal is um, to have all my ducks in a row. I, I love my job. I'm passionate about the work that I do, but 
Um, what's more important is to be able to retire young enough to where I can enjoy my other passions, the outdoors and things like that with my kids while yeah. they're in their vibrant time of their life. You know, I want to be able to chase them up and down the mountain Absolutely. And, the hills and, and still be able to do it and not have them drag me up the hill, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that wouldn't be any fun for anybody. No. And, and I, man, I, I do remember <clears throat> collecting rocks and sticks and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, <laughs> it well, it's interesting that you bring that up because you know, literally what you and I knew about each other prior to that was, Hey, I'm Bo. Hey, I'm Zach. And I jumped in the back seat, you jumped in the front seat and off we went, you know? Yep. And, and then after, <laughs> like you said, 90 minutes of doing all this stuff, it's like, you know, I was like, man, awesome. A hunter that is, that's willing to help out wicked. Cause as you could probably imagine, I've filmed a lot of people and, and I've seen the complete <laughs> opposite, you know, where it's <laughs> sure. like, I'm the one like, man, I've packed out more animals for the hunter than, than not, you know, oh. it's like, Oh yeah. so like you say, you just, you, you learn who is, who's there to help out and be an asset and who's going to be the bump on the log. And <laughs> you just, you, you see like-minded people. And as you know, when you start meeting like-minded people, it's, you develop a friendship and a, and, and a bond. And yeah, I, I just, I, I remember too, you know, we, we went on that stock up there that with that, with the thunderstorm rolling in and, yeah. uh, man, it was just, it was just wild and heartbreaker, man. That was a heartbreaker. Oh, he was so <laughs> much closer than any of us thought he was. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That was, that's one of those tough ones, man, where you're like, I don't know if I should sit still or if we should keep moving. We, we had no recollection of where that deer bedded down at. And, yeah. And we were at the peak of the hill. I was like, okay, well, pretty soon we're going to be topping the hill. And I mean, it was one more step and those deer popped up and looked right at us. And it just, I was like, ah, yeah, God. 20, I don't know what we were, 25 yards. Yeah. Away we, we made a great stock and all rights. Yeah. You know, we were plenty close. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh man. Yeah. But, and, yeah. That one, that one's going to haunt me until the day I go out there and actually knock one down during that OTC season in, in, uh, in August, that one's going to haunt me. Yeah. I, I definitely need some redemption before I die. Yeah. On that one. Not to mention that was 190 something inch deer based on what Chino was saying. So yeah, you know, I mean, it other, was just, just a little guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah. And it, I don't know it. I, I, like you said, it, it also depends on where you are in your hunting life. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and certain things mean more to certain people. And I can definitely, you know, you're mentioned wanting to go on adventures with your kids. I, uh, I, I've been taking my oldest boy. He went on a hunt with me since when he was two and he wow. was literally, he walked probably two miles and almost 14 inches of snow by himself. And wow. he was sitting on my shoulders and I shot a cow elk and we've done uh, numerous other adventures. Right. Um, but I, you know, hearing, hearing the, the excitement in your voice about taking your kids out and experience it with them is something I 100% resonate with because I remember it like it was yesterday. My son was four, he's 10 now and we're walking down the trail and he goes, dad, stop, stop. And I'm like, you know, frozen. I'm like, what, <laughs> what do you see? something?" <laughs> and, uh, he's got something in his hand 
And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And he goes, look at this caterpillar. <laughs> and it hit me really hard because I was like, man, the amount of things that I am taking for granted that are changing his life, mm-hmm. you know, and so with, with your kids being, you know, wanting to take your kids, are your kids, are they pretty interested in the outdoors and things like that? So it, it's literally accumulating week by week. It's awesome. So That's they, they so both, cool. Um, they both been shooting. They both have had bows since my oldest has had a bow since he was six. My other one's had a bow since he was three. And How now old they're are they now? The point, they're they're five and nine. And um, now there's the point where if I go to the range, they want to go to the range. If me and my wife go to the range and shoot our bows, they want to go. That's and so cool. We don't even, I mean, now it's the point we don't have to do much. We set them up on a target and they're on their own shooting for 45 minutes. And they yeah. love it. we got to drag them out of there when it's time to leave. <laughs> um, well, now my oldest is getting, he did a book report or a little, a little school paper. Um, he's in the third grade. He did a little paper on, um, I forget exactly what they're called, but it is a, it's a Mexican species of coyote. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's like, dad, do we have coyotes here? I'm like, yeah, dude, we got a lot of coyotes. He's like, can we hunt coyotes? I'm like, yeah, we can hunt them year round. He's like, I want to learn how to hunt a coyote. I'm like, all right. So I, I started reaching out. I met a mutual friend again through hunting camp. Um, Joey Hartley's a big time, uh, coyote hunter out in Kentucky. And I was like, hey, man, I need to figure out how to call coyotes. Can you help me? I was like, I'm your guy. And so he's been kind of tutoring me from afar. And uh, we got so our call. Cool. We, got, we got a couple of friends that have some ranches down here. And they're like, man, you guys can come call coyotes anytime you want. So that's our – he's been working on his marksmanship a little bit. That's our first thing is, is he wants to coyote hunt. And then my little one is um, – he, he loves sitting in the stand. He's dying to, to shoot something with his bow. He, uh, he's not at the point yet where he's got the poundage or the range. Um, you know, he's shooting 10 yards, 11 yards, right. 12, you know, 15 yards with his little, his little bear novice bow. But, um, he, he wants to, he can't wait until he's eight, nine years old. Like, you know, he's dying, but, um, it's funny cause I've offered to him like, Hey, you know, he, he shoots a 22 pretty good. He shoots an air rifle pretty good. I'm like, you want to go, you want to try squirrel hunt? You want to rabbit hunt? Yeah. No, dad, I want to, you know, I want to kill a big white tail or, you know, <laughs> That's we've got so friends awesome. out west, right? And we got friends out west that, that lion hunt and stuff. And like, I want to go on a mountain lion hunt. I'm like, all right, well, we, you got to practice shooting. Like, we got to get better at, <laughs> at that kind of stuff because your air rifle ain't going to do it when, right. we, uh, when we get around that kind of stuff. So, but they are definitely, they're into it. And now they've got, as they get older, they're remembering like their cousins and other people. And so now they know like who the hunters are in the family. They know my friends that are hunters. They're, they're starting to, they'll ask like, Hey, can we watch meat eater tonight? Can we watch like, um, you know, they want to watch Levi Morgan YouTube videos and they want to, you know, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So it's, it, it's getting fun that that's what we're spending our time on. Um, but, uh, I know I'm anticipating here in the next couple of years, we'll actually be able to really get our feet wet with, with some things uh, we did a little bit of trapping last year we trapped a couple of good beavers out here for a friend on her ranch that's and, so cool um, which was helping her they were causing some problems on her stream going through her property and dude they were fascinated by it they wanted to they wanted to euro euro out the skulls and they wanted to see what their teeth looked like and you know what can we do with the pelts daddy like can we make stuff out of them can we it, it was just a cool experience and the more we get into the outdoors they're just i can i know those experiences are just going to compound and they're going to want to do more and more which is awesome that's like my 
that's my Disneyland. So absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just so awesome to see a kid start growing and, and, and fostering and building that same love for it that you have, you know, it's, it's like, it's kind of like a, you know, you do a little fist pump, like, yes, like yep. <laughs> we're going to get yep. to do this together. How awesome. Yep. Yep. It's funny. Cause my oldest in the beginning, like he hates, he didn't want to ever sit in a stand. So like a couple of times we try to take him on pig hunts and we're like, Oh, we'll sit in the stand. We're off the ground. And, uh, he hated it. We'd be there five minutes. He's like, I'm done. Can we go? Um, but then when it comes to shooting, he'll sit there and shoot all day long. So then later on, he's like, I want a coyote hunt. I'm like, okay, well, you understand that you're getting pretty good at shooting, but you're going to have to sit still when we call them in. You can't just be, you know, jumping around like they're, they're not going to, they're smart. They're not going to come in. Yeah. And, uh, so now he's like, oh, okay. I see. So sitting still is a skill, just like shooting. I've got to learn how to get good at that. And he is, he's getting better at it, you know? Uh, just like walking quietly through the woods, like, you know, you got to learn how to tread lightly and, and be sneaky and, you know, undetected at times. But so it's fun to watch them kind of pick up on the process and, and get driven by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bo, I, we've already been chatting for almost an hour. Um, <laughs> and and I again, I. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out today and hopping on the podcast. Um, I could probably talk to you for another hour just about some of the little finer details of the stuff we discussed. It, you know, if I'm being honest, um, I learned a bunch and I, I have a ton of respect for you and, and your love for not only what you do, but you know, your love for the challenge and your love for the outdoors and, and your, um, drive to not only be a great leader and role model, but be a great dad as well, because I, you know, our kids got somebody to look up to and it might as well be us. And so I, I I can't, I respect that a ton, you know? So I thank you so much for taking the time out today and hopping on the podcast. Definitely Zach. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely, we'll have to tee up that next one. We can jump down any rabbit holes you want to. I I really had a a good time and appreciate the sentiments. And I, I also am, am definitely looking forward to chasing some of those, uh, those pronghorn out in Wyoming with you one day. So we gotta, we gotta figure that out. Perfect, man. Well, that's where I'm going to cut it.